Our scripture reading is from Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. First, will you join me in a prayer of illumination? Heavenly Father, it is in your light that we see light. And so enlighten our hearts and our minds. Give us open hearts and ears to hear and a willing spirit to live what you teach us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this he has given us assurance by all, to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, <laughs> but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of the Lord. Morning. Morning. Albrecht Durer is maybe not a household name for many of us. He's a German Renaissance uh, artist. And if, if that name is really unfamiliar, then uh, you at least know one of his works. If you were to Google uh, praying hands, you would recognize it almost instantly. Durer is, uh, I, I, by the way, Jeff, you've got to correct my German pronunciation on that later. Um, yeah, wow. He is an incredibly prolific artist, and he produced numerous works of various kinds. Uh, and I'm not an art historian, so I don't know how common it is to do self-portraits, but my perception, at least, is that this guy painted himself a lot. Uh, and it's interesting because many of his early self-portraits kind of put on display his flowing reddish blonde hair and his fine clothing. And, uh, and they also, uh, in many ways, they're sort of the peak of that form. And he's trying to show off, basically. Uh, and you can see a number of these paintings continue in this vein. And eventually, uh, in the year 1500, there is this weird shift that happens, where normally in a self-portrait, uh, an artist will paint themselves kind of at an angle like this, you know, uh, and, and they'll be sitting down or um, looking relaxed in some way. And, and in this painting, in the year 1500, at the age of 28, Albrecht Dura paints himself, and that's, already, that's weird already, that's not done. But he also paints his hair a different color. It, curly and brown. He also, weirdest of all, instead of uh, painting himself sort of sitting down, he's standing up in a regal robe, and he's holding his hand like this in front of him. And the impression that you get when you look at this painting is that he's just painted himself as an icon. He looks a lot like Jesus. There's, it's a painting, and it's ambiguous in its meaning, and this isn't an art history class. So we're not going to prolong this too much. But there is uh, one way of looking at this painting as sort of the final trajectory in a movement of self-aggrandizement. Uh, and he finally just says, I'm Jesus. And it's a case study in a challenge that I think every human being faces, which is the temptation to make gods that look like us to make ourselves look like gods. And it's for this reason that idolatry, false worship, 
is one of the most common sins in the Bible, and it's most commonly um, spoken against. And uh, this is this combination of our, our knowledge of God and our knowledge of ourselves is something that John Calvin, just like a couple decades after uh, Durham, uh, he wrestles with what comes first. Do we know God first or do we know ourselves first? And he answers, yes, both. And uh, Calvin, you got to love him. Uh, and he says this famously, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. And so, if this is where wisdom is, it's also exactly where you'd expect to find foolishness. The relationship between God and human beings is a place where a lot of confusion happens. And so, we have to ask, <laughs> how do we respond? If this is the problem. And the truth is that it, it fits very well with our mission and vision and the, the line of our mission and vision, which I'm basing our, our reflections on today, which is that we glorify God by engaging the university with Christ's love and redemption. And the truth is, what we need when our, in our confusion about God and humanity is to know love and redemption. And as we consider this text from Acts 17, we're going to see that Paul focuses on just those things, and that he does so in two ways that we're going to take in turn. So first, we want to draw attention to Paul's manner, and then we're going to look at Paul's message, so his manner and his message. And already, I have to explain myself, because to draw attention to someone's manner, uh, some of us don't get why that matters. If you're saying the true words, why do you have to worry about how they're said? Others of us know immediately what I mean because we've heard really true words spoken unkindly with hostility or arrogance or other things. I remember I had a moment when I was a seminary student where I, it kind of occurred to me that I was learning as much or more from the ways of my professors as their words. I had one professor who would probably didn't tell me anything new theologically that I didn't already learn from something else, but something about the way that he communicated it, it came home to me and came alive to me in a new way. And so this is why it's important to attend to not just Paul's message, just the words he says, but also his manner. So what do we see when we look at that? Well, when we look at verse 16, the first thing we see when Paul is going into Athens, his spirit is provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Maybe our first thought is, of course he'd be provoked. He's an angry Christian person. And so when he sees people not worshiping God, he's going to be mad. And so we'd expect, you know, verse 17 would be, so he composed a diatribe, or he railed against the idolatry of the city. And the, what do we see in verse 17? So he reasoned. He saw that the city was full of idols, and he was disturbed, not by the idolaters, but by the idolatry. It's an important distinction. 
He saw what was happening and the ways that human beings were being misdirected. And he had compassion and love and wanted to change that. And so that's the first thing. He's disturbed by idolatry, but not idolaters. He's, he's reasoning with them, and he's motivated by love. It's the first thing about his manner. The second thing uh, is, if you look at 17 and 18, where does Paul go? He goes to the synagogue, and he reasons with Jews every day, and I love how it puts it, with everybody who happened to be there. Just whoever happened to walk by and was interested, he was there, and he was talking with them. And then also, uh, he was there with the intelligentsia, the academic philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. So what do we learn about Paul's manner? We learn that he is certainly strategic, but he's not exclusive. And he is aware of the different kinds of people that he is coming to. And he reasons accordingly. So we actually have an example of a different sermon that he gives in Acts 14, where he gives a, a synagogue sermon. And he is drawing all sorts of Old Testament scripture and themes together. And you're, like for us, we're like, wow, that's so cool. And then we get to this and we wonder, where is the Bible? <laughs> but he is aware of the context. And he knows that if he starts quoting the prophet Isaiah, they will look at him befuddled on the Areopagus. Third thing about Paul's manner. So he's not only uh, motivated by love and disturbed by idolatry, he's not only aware of these different contexts, but he's also um, very hospitable in using the poetry of the people to which he's come. So when he quotes in verse 28, uh, he quotes twice from two different poets. In him we live and move and have our being, and for we are indeed his offspring. And the second one is uh, from Calanthe's hymn to Zeus. So it's a, it's a hymn to a false god. And he's saying, there's something true about that. And instead of maybe some of our history and our experience may be that uh, Christians are better often at rejecting things that other cultures have to offer. Uh, and here we have an example of Paul doing the opposite, of being able to pick apart what is true from the original context and to say, that's actually something good. The fourth thing, this is the last thing. In verse 18, Paul's called a babbler. And uh, in, in verse 32, he's mocked. Um, back in uh, verse 18, he's also misunderstood. He's thought to be preaching foreign divinities. So, in that situation, how does Paul conduct himself? Being mocked and misunderstood. He humbly preaches and earnestly reasons with people. So even though he is faced with difficulty and hardship and mocking, he persists. He's patient, and the, the old-fashioned word long-suffering. This actually fits with the picture that we get of Paul in the other parts of the Bible as somebody who um, is beaten numerous times for the witness of Jesus. He's shipwrecked. He suffers immense mental anguish. Did you think about that? How much he loves these churches. And he says in one letter that he's anxious for them. 
So through and through, we see he endures suffering and mocking and misunderstanding. He is attentive to the context of these people. He's hospitable to their culture. And he's not disturbed by who they are, but by the ways in which they're misdirected in their love. And these all paint a picture of Paul's manner as motivated by love. Fundamentally, Paul loves the Athenians. Where did Paul learn this? He learned it from Jesus, who, when suffering, did not curse or burn in wrath. He didn't call down fire on his enemies. He suffered for them. So, what does this mean for us? I think it's important that we try to imitate this love. And what it involves is not just warm feelings toward people, but really active efforts to understand them and to know them, to see them. So we need to learn how to see people. And we can also learn, it's not easy, to be patient and long-suffering as we minister to other people, and especially in the context of engaging the university. So that's the manner that we're being invited to walk in. And um, it's a high calling. Can I say? It's, it's hard. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us. And so as we do that, we also want to consider Paul's message. Because Paul does actually preach. That's a part of it. We might, we might sometimes overvalue words, but he does actually preach. And so what do we see when we consider his message? Well, um, first I'll just ask, put yourself in Paul's shoes. And you're coming to this city, and it's, uh, it's in its fading glory. It's still pretty glorious, but it's kind of fading. Um, and it's a place of intellectual reputation. So you're talking to well-educated, secular people. What are you going to talk about? For Paul, he focuses on two things, on God and humanity, exactly where our confusion often lies. So part of the reason why he does this, just as a little bit of background, is that the philosophers to whom he's speaking are concerned and confused about these exact things. So the Epicureans, um, they, are, they think that God is distant and uninvolved. And so that what matters most is for you to enjoy your life. And they have noble ideas about that. They don't just think, just have a party all the time. They, they have noble ideas. You know, you should have intellectual pursuits and you should really pursue virtue because, you, it, because it's a good life and it's enjoyable. So they, they think that that's your responsibility because God is distant. The Stoics are kind of in many ways the opposite. They are so convinced that everything that exists is a piece of God, a part of the spark of divinity. And so as a result, they think they have to purify themselves like no end. And so they work incredibly hard 
to discipline themselves so that they can be, uh, they can be worthy of that divinity. And so into this milieu, which pick what you think, I, I think that it resonates a lot with us uh, with our context. People who think either God is near, so near that is indistinguishable from us, or so distant that it's just completely irrelevant to us. But Paul, uh, he threads a needle here. So in verse 23 25, to 25, he mentions, I'll just say also in verse 22, when he says that they're very religious, uh, that could be taken as a slight, but I think it's a really honest assessment. Just, you are religious. And I think that's the kind of thing we can also say to our neighbors is you are religious. Um, that's true, even if you don't think you are. And um, as, as Paul addresses these very religious people, he says that what you worship is unknown, this unknown God. This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And then he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands. Um, so what we're going to notice in how Paul preaches his message is that there's a denial and there's an affirmation. So the denial is right there in verse 24 and 25. He's not, he doesn't live in temples made by man. He doesn't serve by human hands. And the interesting thing there is uh, both of those, the words that those translations uh, translate, it refer to hands, specifically, like hands. So uh, if we tend to think about God as like a big version of ourselves, Paul here is saying, no, he doesn't have hands. He's not served by human hands. So the first denial is that God is not like us. And that's good. It made, does it seem like good news? That God's not like us? It is. Because it means in all the ways that we fail, and are limited, he's not. In all the ways that we have needs, he does not need. And most importantly, as uh, Paul would say in the letter to Ephesians, God is blessed. He's happy, perfectly happy. And it's out of that happiness and that joy that he works in our lives and in creation. So, the denial is that God doesn't have hands. He's not, uh, he's not distant in one sense, um, that, or he's not so near that you could serve him, that you could like, use these idols to provide a need that he has. But he's also not distant. So in verse 27 and 28, uh, especially in 28, but he's, Paul says, that God is not actually far from any one of us. And that in him we live and move and have our being. So this is a, an affirmation of God's nearness. If some of us are tempted to think of God as distant and irrelevant or so far away that there's no way that he can have an impact on our lives, Paul is saying God is nearer to you than you are to yourself. Um, I'm going to give you a warning. I'm going to quote from a scholastic theologian. Just prepare yourself. I don't know how often this happens. I've never done this before. So, Aquinas. 
says in his Summa Theologiae, in, if you want to look up the reference, I know some of you might, uh, in, it's in the first part, Article 8. Um, he says that as long as a thing has being, God must be present to it, according to its mode of being. But being is innermost in each thing. Hence, it must be that God is in all things and innermostly. If I could translate that scholastic idiom. Paul, uh, Paul Aquinas is saying, God is nearer to you than anything else because he is the reason that you exist. And there's nothing more basic to you than that you exist, that you can't get any more reduction than the fact that you're a person who exists. You can add a lot to it, but that's the most basic thing. And Aquinas, following Paul, is saying, God is the cause of that. And so he's intimately near you, even though he is not like you. So, did you pause. Do you feel your heartbeat? Your lungs? Maybe if you're, if you're really quiet, you can hear your blood rushing through your veins. God is more near to you than these. So we're in deep waters. We're going to come up for air. Paul has just spoken of God. That's one half of his message. The other half is about humanity. And um, in both of these, we see that Paul is emphasizing the love that we find in God. So when Paul turns to humanity in verses 26 to 28, Paul is going to say that uh, people are made, that, that they're made and that God determines their lives. And so the, the really important thing for us to hear from that is that we are not the lords of history. We sometimes can think of ourselves that way when we make plans and we try to figure out what we're going to do in six months or a year. But Paul is saying we aren't the lords of our own lives. We were made. And we belong to God. So the denial is that we are not, uh, we're not, we didn't make ourselves. We aren't the lords of our own lives. But the affirmation is perhaps even more important. And it's that you were made with dignity and purpose. So, looking at verse 27. Um, I, really, I want to focus on the word that. It's a small word. Um, our English translations uh, do what they can with this, but it, in the original language, it's very direct. It's uh, God made humanity, and you can do a dot, 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 to seek God. Just God made you to seek him. This is... Paul's version of the Augustine quote that you have in your reflections page. God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. So there's a purpose to humanity. And there's also a great dignity, which you see when Paul quotes from the Pope. So we're not just a random colleague. It's that we are offspring of God. So we're not just a random collocation of atoms or... Uh, Flesh sack, that's a terrible phrase, I'm sorry. 
Um, but we are human beings who are created in the image of God. We are fashioned after the divine likeness. And that's a high idea. But Paul says that it's precisely because of this, because we see each other and we relate to one another, that we should know that God, who is not like us, can't be served with human hands. And the, uh, the dignity that we have as human beings, it means that we can't demean ourselves by these idols and by failing to exist for the purpose that we were made. So, um, Paul could have stopped there, and that would have answered the, the question and confusion that we have about God and humans. We said, well, first off, God is not like those idols. He's transcendent. And second, you are more than uh, just a, a piece of God, or you're more than something that's just an animal. Um, you're actually an offspring of God. He's, he's made you, and he's made you in, your, in his image. But Paul doesn't stop there because he came not to just preach love, but redemption. And so he does this really condensed um, statement about Jesus where he says that God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I, there's a lot to say here. Um, but I, I'll just say Paul... Uh, is doing exactly the thing that got him mocked earlier. Did you notice that? He, up in the beginning, in verse 18, he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And here he is again. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Why is he doing that? It's where Jesus is where God and humanity meet. It's where God comes and dwells in human flesh without separation or confusion. And it's where we have the clearest image of who God is and who we were made to be because Jesus is the perfect human being. And so, Paul, by preaching Christ, reminds us that Jesus himself said that he came to seek and save the lost. That in the same way, we follow and we engage the university, we engage the city and the world with Christ's love and redemption. Because Paul shows us how to engage the Areopagus with Christ's love and redemption. And so we get to follow in that example. So, part of this, it, uh, the lesson that we have to internalize right now is um, that what it means for God to be God and what it means for us to be humans is incredibly important for understanding the gospel. Because God is far more infinite and powerful and amazing than we can imagine, and also far more intimate than we can imagine. And we have higher dignity than we often treat ourselves. And so do our neighbors, and so do the students and the faculty, and all those at the university. And the university is a place that God loves, and we're called to love it too. I'll close with this. Um, there, so I mentioned Albrecht Durer at the beginning. And there is the, the one, there's one way to interpret his self-portrait, where he looks like Jesus. And it's, wow, he thinks really highly of himself. And 
That's one way. The other way, though, is, uh, and I don't know historically what to think about this, but what if Dura actually graphed something true? In depicting himself looking like Jesus, he was depicting what's going to be true for all of us when Jesus comes back. We will be conformed to his likeness. And we will see the completion of our redemption and we'll be able to live fully in the enjoyment of God's love. So, have you heard that? We're, uh, there's one sense in which we can think about engaging the university as if this is about the people over there, down the street. It's gonna be really hard to engage them, the students and the faculty and others. So have you heard it? Do you believe this? I'm sorry, Jim, I'm not trying to copy you. <laughs> Just realized that. Let's believe it together. Let's believe it together. <laughs>